You're listening to the North Canton Chapel podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The North Canton Chapel exists to make much of Jesus every day to everyone. It's our prayer that this podcast will equip you to do just that. We believe that there's nothing like the church united together in gospel community. We'd love if you'd stop in and say hello in person if you're in our neighborhood. Our gathering times are at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Thank you again for joining us today. Let's listen in. Welcome again. Glad you guys are here. Again, online or in the room, thank you for joining us. Um, I am not too proud to admit that I spend a lot of time on Pinterest. It's... Yeah, there was, like, there was like a little rebuke in that laugh and then a little attaboy in that laugh. I heard through that. That's okay. So um, kind of one of my favorite little things to find, and I'm not sure if you've ever found yourself in like this little wormhole that you just a half hour later like wake up from, and you're like, what have I been doing for the last half hour, um, is that you had one job. You ever seen this thing? You had one job, all right? I have three of my favorites that I want to show you. Here's the first picture. You had one job. She's like, I don't know, maybe it was just, we got the wrong arrow template, but we're doing it anyway, so turn left. All right, here's another one. You had one job. Long yellow things. We call those bananas. It's okay. Maybe, it says prices you can trust. Maybe that's where the trust stops. It's like, we're big on the prices, descriptions, we're not sure. This one's my favorite, though. Here you go. And it's my favorite, not just like for the obvious, like the dude thought he could make it and didn't, but it's my favorite because of what it says on the back. It says, we fit. And I kind of want to go, want to bet? I'm not sure about that. So anyway, you had one job. It's like, oh, you missed that one little detail. So if you're looking for something to do this afternoon in the middle of a thunderstorm, hop on and, and, and have fun researching that. Here's a question, though, and kind of where we're going to go this morning. It does make me wonder... What is like the one job of the church? What is the one job, right? You have one thing you're really supposed to do. Is the job of the church to fill churches with people? Is the job of the church to put on a 90-minute thing once a week that you come and you sit and you sing and you listen and you go? And what is the job of the church? And like for me, just a lot of recent days, it's kind of come back to these things that I hear Paul say a lot, um, where he says, woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. And I go, yeah, that, that, gosh, that seems like the one job. Or he says, I have resolved to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I go, yeah, like that. There's this like very central core to the Christian faith that like really it's the one job that we have is to make much of Jesus in a world that doesn't know him. And as we see our world drifting and drifting further and further, slower and slower to away from the things of Jesus, it does make me go, gosh, this is the thing that we have to get right. We have to see him clearly. We're not churchians, we're Christians. There's a difference. And so, this is the second week of our six-week series, just called Cross-Reference, Seeing Jesus Rightly. And this is a little bit of a theology series. We do this every spring. We take a little deep dive into one section of theology. And this spring, it's Christology, a study of Christ. Um, we had some intro comments last week as to why theology matters and why it's so important. And we're going to do a similar thing this week. So for the next like 10 minutes or so, just relax. We're going to do some intro content around theology and, and just how to think theologically. So we're going to start things off this way. Four truths 
or if it helps you, not just four truths, four irrefutable, indisputable, undeniable, universal truths. That's how I'd say it, all right? And it's up to you if you want to argue about them later, that's fine. You can buy me a cup of coffee and we'll chat. But these are things, when you think theologically, that are absolutely true, at least from where I sit as a pastor. These are things I hear an awful lot and things I see an awful lot. So I just want to talk about them before we even get to our text this morning. Truth number one is this. Everybody is a theologian, even if you don't realize it. Everybody's a theologian, even if you don't realize it. Everybody has thoughts about God. You do. Everybody has words about God. In its purest sense, that's what theology means, a word about God. Logos, word, theo, God. Word about God. You can't turn it off. And I would actually argue that having thoughts about God is part of what makes us uniquely human. Your dog doesn't have thoughts about God. You put food in his bowl, you're God. (laughs) But as a human, we have thoughts about God. We can't get away from this. It's just like worship. You are always worshiping something. You ever think about it that way? It's not just music. You are always talking about, by your life or by your words, you're always talking about how much something is worth to you. Discipleship, parents, you are always discipling your kids. It isn't like, well, now we have discipleship hour. No, 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 you are always showing them something. Just the question is, what is it? It's like evangelism, same idea. You are always evangelizing something. It could be like a great restaurant, a good movie, a great band. It could be the Browns draft pick. That was about as awkward of a laugh as I was expecting at that point, so that's good. You're always talking about how great something is. You can't shut it off. It's part of your design as a human. Everyone is a theologian. You can't stop thinking about God. That's what the writer of Ecclesiastes meant when he said that God has put eternity in the hearts of man. We're always thinking about God. So that's truth number one. Truth number two, your theology starts somewhere even if you don't know it. Your theology starts somewhere even if you don't know it. This is kind of like that age-old question, does the fish know that it's wet? Think about it. It's spent its entire life saturated in the same environment, so it doesn't even question the environment. Does the fish know that it's wet? It's the same thing with theology. How you think about God is shaped by something, and often we don't even know it. Okay, so let's, let's test this a little bit. Here's a theological statement for you. Mankind is basically good. It's a theological statement. I didn't say it was a theological truth yet. Hang on. It's a theological statement. Mankind is basically good. It speaks to how you view yourself, how you view your neighbor, how you view your world, how you view your need for a savior. Mankind is basically good. That's a theological statement. Now what happened in this room, without any prompting from me, is you had an immediate reaction almost unconsciously, instantly. That statement, mankind is basically good, went through your truth filter in your brain and you had a reaction. It was probably one of three. Maybe some of you said, yeah, like that seems mostly good. I mean, I wouldn't want to live in a world where people weren't basically good. Some of you said, oh my gosh, no, like the last two years, prove that emphatically. Mankind is not basically good. And maybe you had scriptures flash to your mind about that. Some of you are sitting here right now, even now, going, I'm kind of hedging my bets because I want to see where he goes with this before I'm that guy. But you had a reaction instantly without any prompting from me. Does the fish know it's wet? Now here's the question behind the question. Before we get to what your reaction was, 
why did you think the way that you did? Why did you react that way? That statement, mankind is basically good, passed through your truth filter. But here's the bigger question. Where did your truth filter come from? Why do you think the way that you think? What is shaping you? Your reaction to any theological statement comes from somewhere. Something is shaping you. The only question is, what is it? So that's point number two. Your theology starts somewhere, even if you don't know it. Point number three. Your theology leads somewhere, even if you can't see it. Your theology leads you somewhere, even if you can't see it. Now put another way. What I believe has consequences. It will shape my life. Okay, so let's run this kind of through a scenario. If my theology starts with me, what I think is right, what seems right, my natural inclinations, if I start with me, that's going to lead me somewhere. It's probably going to lead you to theological liberalism. And here's the reason why. Only one reason because I've tied my authority to a very shifting, very unstable authority, me, right? So my theology will lead me here. Guys, we are really poor authorities over our life. I hate to be that guy. We're really bad at leading our own lives. We can't even decide what we want for lunch today. Yes, I can, Chipotle, always, just like where I go. But if I tie my spiritual authority to what I think, what seems right, what makes sense to me most, it's going to drift somewhere. Proverbs even says, there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. Here's the thing, just being honest. I know myself well enough to be very suspicious of myself. So if I'm my own authority, I will unsurprisingly lead myself in circles that lead back to me. That's not good. Here's what I need. I need another authority. I need something outside of me, something truer than me. Enter God's word. (laughs) Now, if you tie your theology, if you start your theology to scripture, to God's revealed word, if you put yourself under that, you're probably going to end up as a theological conservative. And again, that's for one reason, because unlike me, this doesn't change. Unlike me, this actually knows what it's talking about. has a much better foundation. Sounds like something Jesus said once, right? A house that's built on a rock versus a house that's built on sand. Just a personal note. So for me, in 41 years of life, I've learned a couple very clear things. One, I am confused and confusing. Number two, I live in a world that is confused and confusing. Number three, By contrast, mercifully, wonderfully, beautifully, Scripture, God's Word, has a remarkably steadying effect. Now, if your reaction to all of that is what? I can't trust myself? Like, come on, that sounds so negative. My general response is, don't forget what Jesus said. He says, if anybody wants to be my follower, he must deny himself. What that means is I should not only be suspicious of my natural inclinations, I should seek to deny and replace those natural inclinations and thinking with the thinking of Jesus, what he has to say. Here's the thing. Freedom is not found 
and having better thoughts or more thoughts about me. Freedom is actually found in having better thoughts about Christ and thinking and becoming more like him. So that's point number three. Your theology will lead you somewhere, even if you can't see it. So last point, and then we'll get to the topic for today. I think this will be helpful. Point number four. Clarity is kindness, even if it's uncomfortable. I'm not the first person to say clarity is kindness, but I really love it, especially when it pertains to thoughts about God. Clarity is kindness. What that means is if you're going to do theology, just be honest about where your theology comes from. Just be honest about your authority. Be honest about what you think. And so, to be really clear with you guys, if you're looking for a church home and you're considering North Canton Chapel, or maybe you've been here for a few months and you're wondering if this is the place for you, or maybe you've been here for decades and you've always wondered about this stuff, let me be really clear um, about our authority and why it matters. Three core convictions about God's word. I feel like this may be helpful for you. First off, we believe that God's word is inspired. What that means is that God's word is ultimately not the creation of man. It is ultimately the creation of God. Sure, God used men to transmit it, to put pen to paper, so to speak. But ultimately, this is a creation of God. This is inspired. Second thing we believe is that we believe God's word is inerrant. That means it's without error. There's no contradictions in this thing. There's no mistakes. There's nothing left out. There's nothing extra. This is exactly God's word. And because of those two, third thing we believe about God's word as an authority, we believe it's authoritative. I am actually a pretty terrible authority, but God's word is a good one because of those two things. So the Bible has the weight of God's authority behind it. This isn't just a book with charming advice. This is a book with compelling authority. So three huge theological building blocks for us because if you start pulling those out, things get really unstable really quickly. And I know a lot of people, even whole denominations, who have done that. And so if clarity is kindness, I feel like it's just good to be kind and clear to you. So now to the topic at hand for today, right? Last week we talked about the importance of the virgin birth and why this is such a big deal when you're thinking about Jesus, who he is and what he did. We asked, why did Jesus have to be born of a virgin? And we landed in these two Christmas time kind of texts. One from Matthew, Matthew who was Jewish writer. He was obsessed with prophecy and he wrote to a Jewish audience. One from Luke. Luke was a Greek doctor who was obsessed with details and he wrote to a Greek audience. And so this morning we're moving past the fact of the virgin birth to ask another question. Why does Jesus have to be fully God and fully man? It's a complex question. Not one that's very easily answered. You think about a lot of it. And again, I'm not sure how how familiar you might be with the religious landscape of America today or the religious history of America today. Cults have been founded by removing one of those two ideas. That either Jesus is not God or he's not man or maybe not either. Sounds like this. That Jesus was created. Nope. That Jesus is one of many gods. Nope. That you too could become a god. Nope. That Jesus was just a good teacher. Nope. So when we say that Jesus is fully God and fully man, here's what we're going to do this morning. Three kind of sections. We're going to do the same thing every week. We're going to talk about what this doctrine means. So like, what are we saying when we're saying that? 
Jesus is fully God, fully man. What does this doctrine mean? Then we're going to talk about why it's so significant. And then we're going to talk about what you're supposed to do about it. Why does it even matter? And so to start, we're going to head to one very key text, John chapter 1. So go ahead and turn to John chapter 1. The Gospel of John was written by a guy named, help me, there you go, still awake, love it. It was written by a guy named John. John was one of Jesus' disciples, interestingly, probably one of the youngest of Jesus' disciples, one of his closest. Years later, John pastored a church in a town called Ephesus, and like every good pastor, John wanted his people to see Jesus clearly, understand who he is and why it's so important. And so to do that, he wrote a gospel. And a gospel is not just a collection of stories, okay? It's not just a biography. A gospel is like a sermon biography, like smashed together. So he's got a point. He's he's trying to prove that Jesus is God, but he also wants to talk to you about who Jesus is. So to introduce this story, John uses two words to describe Jesus, and I want you to watch out for him. First, he calls Jesus the Word. That's a very interesting idea. He lifted that from Greek philosophy. The Word, according to Greek philosophy in the first century, was everything you've ever wondered about. Everything that never quite fit anywhere. All that like inner human hunger for what could be in the world. That was the Word. Greeks called it the Word. The Greek word is logos, but John calls Jesus the Word. And then the second thing he talks about, he'll introduce Jesus as the light, which I think is also really interesting, because not only does our world looking for purpose and meaning and the answer to all those deep questions, our world is also a very dark place, like the first century. And so to think of Jesus as light is really beautiful. So watch out for those two words. Here's what he says. John chapter 1. Let's just start right in verse 1. He says, in the beginning... Stop. What other book in the Bible talks about the beginning like that? Genesis. So he's talking about something way, way old. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now we could stop right there, and you had everything that you might need. Because what he's talking about is that whoever this being is, whoever this answer to all life's deepest questions is, he's always been there. In the very beginning, he was with God. Not only that, not only was he with him, he was God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. Okay, so this being that he's about to talk about was not created. He was creator. He made stuff. Everything we see in him was life. And that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. That's a very interesting way of looking at your world, isn't it? You live in a dark world, but the darkness doesn't have the final word, does it? Jesus does. Well, now he's going to tell you a little bit more of a story. He says, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. Now, he's not talking about himself here. He's talking about John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin. He came as a witness to bear witness about that light. Why? That all might believe through him. He himself, he was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Now he's talking about this virgin birth where we were last week. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. What a striking statement that is. And when Jesus was born, there was immediately opposition and non-recognition. Nobody really knew who he really was. 
gets worse. Verse 11, he came to his own, to his own people, didn't receive him. But, aren't you thankful? There's always a, a but there. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of God. You see how he roots this all in eternity past. And then now he gets real specific. He says, and the word became flesh. That's the crux. We said this last week that the message translation by Eugene Peterson, the interpretation really, says, the word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. Jesus came close. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we all have received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who's at the Father's side, has made him known. So much richness in there. We could spend like a weekend just unpacking every one of those little things. But here's what John wants us to understand about Jesus. Put all this together. Here's where we've got to go. By saying that Jesus is fully God and fully man, here's what we're saying. Three things. So for you note takers, I'm going to do this really slow. Here you go. First, being eternally and uniquely God. Being eternally and uniquely God, Jesus became fully and completely human. Being eternally and uniquely God, Jesus became fully and completely human so that, and then here's the big piece that's so fun to think about, so that he could reveal God's nature and accomplish God's purposes. There's a ton in there that we're going to unpack in just a few minutes. Here it is again. Being eternally and uniquely God, Jesus became fully and completely human so that he could reveal God's nature, who he is, and accomplish God's purposes, what he was supposed to do. I love that last one because this is where he gets so intense, like he came with a mission. So let's break that apart. We're going to talk about what it means, talk about why it's so significant, and then talk about what to do with it. First question, what does this doctrine mean? What does this even mean? Why are we bothering to go here? What does this mean? So three ways from Scripture that I want to give you to see that Jesus is fully God. First, Jesus has divine titles ascribed to him. I don't know if you've ever caught this, but all across the Gospels, we see titles applied to Jesus that are only ever reserved for God. Messiah, Son of God, Lord. And here's what's interesting. He doesn't refute them. Now, if Jesus wasn't God and just a good man and somebody called him God, he better refute it. If I said to Tom, like, Tom, you are Lord, you'd be like, no, I'm not. <laughs> Jesus doesn't refute those titles when applied to him. But then he also goes on to give himself other titles. He says things like this. He says, I am the bread of life. I am the narrow door. I am the living water. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Now, here's what's significant about that. He's not just being accidentally poetic. He's being very intentionally theological. 
How did God reveal himself in the Old Testament? Two words. I am. You remember the story, right? Moses goes up on the mountain. God speaks in the burning bush. And he says, go to Pharaoh. Tell him to let my people go. And Moses goes, uh, that's going to take some authority. I'm not just going to go like prancing into Pharaoh's little courtroom and say, hey, a bush told me to do this, so do it. So Moses goes, well, who, so who's going to send me? Who do I say that you are? And God's response is, I am that I am. As if to say, I am, and that's good enough. I don't have to explain myself to you, to Pharaoh, or to anybody. I just am, and that's enough. So when Jesus says, I am the narrow door, I am the bread of life, I am living water, I am, you see what he's doing? He's saying, that, that was me. So divine titles. Second thing, reason that why uh, Jesus is fully God. Jesus performs divine functions. He does God things. John said he wasn't created. He is the creator. He's the author of life. He's the sustainer. And then, as if that wasn't enough, Jesus does God things for individuals. Have you ever caught that? Like he heals sick people. He raises the dead. He teaches with authority. He sends the Holy Spirit. Normal people don't do this kind of stuff. Answer, because Jesus isn't normal. Jesus is human. We'll get to that in a minute. But he's also God. He has divine functions. Third thing, Jesus also shows his divine status. And I love this. All throughout the Gospels, first off, he's omniscient. You see this, right? Doesn't, don't you think it's fascinating? And all these little dialogues and exchanges, do you think it's interesting how Jesus knows what people are thinking before they say it? What is that? He's omnipotent, right? When the disciples are out on the sea and he calms it and they go, who is this guy? Even the wind and the waves obey him. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere. 2 Corinthians says that Christ is in you. Jesus even says before he ascends, he says, I'll be with you always. How is that possible? None of us can do that. Well, it's possible because he's God. So titles, function, and status. That's his divinity. This manger-born baby is different. He's God. How about his humanity? Quick little bit of historical context for us on this one. You might find this interesting. So when John was writing in the first century, there was a rumor going around that maybe Jesus wasn't human. Maybe he was just kind of like a ghost or a spirit or something. And here's where that came from. There was this belief in the ancient world, especially in first century Greek culture, that said matter is evil. Matter is bad stuff. Because stuff causes us to sin, and that's bad. And so if we're going to protect Jesus' divinity, maybe he wasn't really human. It's an interesting line of thought. It's a heresy called docetism, really prominent. But it prompted John to start out another letter. This is from 1 John chapter 1. Take a look at what he says. 1 John chapter 1. That which was from the beginning, sounds like the Gospel of John, doesn't it? Which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon and have touched with our hands. Do you catch all the sensory words in there? John wants us to understand that this Jesus, like, I, I, guys, I touched him. I saw him. I heard him. He's not just a spirit. And then he pushes it a little bit further in the fourth chapter of 1 John where he says this, 1 John chapter 4, he says, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But then watch this. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and is now in the world already. 
It's a little spooky. And so clearly for John, Jesus' humanity is a really big deal. So, back to our definition. That being eternally God, uniquely God, he came fully and completely human. Where do we see this? Jesus was born as a human. He grew up as a human. He slept. Think about this. Jesus got tired and he slept. He ate and he drank. He physically suffered. He physically bled, physically died, physically resurrected. But that's all the the visible stuff. What about all the unseen stuff? That Jesus felt the full range of human emotion. He wept. He was troubled in spirit. He felt anger for those who deserved it and compassion for those who were wounded. He experienced temptation in the desert. He didn't give in. He learned obedience to his father in the garden. And I don't know if you ever thought about it this way, but in some way, Jesus is more human than we are. What would it be like to teach on the side of a mountain that you made? What would it be like to walk on the waves of a sea that your hands scooped out? What would it be like to bend down in the mud, make some mud, touch a blind man's eye and say, the last time I was doing this, I made Adam. Like, gosh. Fully God, fully man. You can't take the Bible seriously and miss those two points. Question number two. This is probably the more important. is Why is this even so significant? Why does this matter so much? Outside of being fun to imagine, why is it so significant? This is not just academic because we said that Jesus came to reveal God's nature and to accomplish God's purposes. Here's where this doctrine gets insanely practical. Reason number one, because only Jesus can reverse the effects of the fall. This is absolutely huge. Last week we talked about original sin. That thanks to Adam and Eve, we are broken and busted up. Can't escape it, can't stop it, can't get away from it. We lie because we're liars, we cheat because we're cheaters, we sin because we're sinners. And you can argue with it all you want, but the truth is this is not just an apple in a garden. Every day I break God's law, and you do too. Intentionally or unintentionally, consciously or unconsciously, I'm guilty and I know it. It's why I run and hide from God when I should run to God. And Paul is crystal clear about what this means. Romans 3.23 says this, This is a damning truth where he says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Guys, that's all of us. Every one of us has sinned. We've fallen short of the glory of God. God's purpose for me is unbroken relationship. Adam broke it, I broke it, and you broke it. But look at what Jesus does. Look at how he reveals God's heart. Therefore, as one trespass, he's talking about Adam in the garden, As one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. He goes on, he says this, for as by the one man's disobedience, who's he talking about? Adam. The many were made sinners. Who's that? Us. So by one man's obedience, who's he talking about there? Jesus. The many will be made sinners. Righteous. You got to track with me on this one. You got to follow me. He sets Adam against Jesus. Like one's the negative of the photograph and one's the positive of the photograph. It's the same story, just black and white are reversed. Adam in the garden, remember? 
runs from God, eats the fruit, shifts the blame, and we pay the cost. Jesus, on the cross, submits to God, feels the pain, takes the blame, and we get the benefit. In the first case, does that feel unfair? Original sin passed down to all of us? Does that feel unfair? Yeah, sorry, it's the way it is. In the second case, is that unfair? Absolutely, but praise God, that's the way it can be by faith. That this does not have to define you. This can be your definition. That you are not defined by Adam's sin anymore. You are defined by Christ's righteousness. So I've got to ask, where are you on this? If Jesus can reverse the effects of the fall, have you placed your faith in him to reverse all that Adam and you and I have done every day since? Where are you on this? That's reason number one. Only Jesus can reverse the effects of the fall. Reason number two why this is significant. Because only Jesus can be a substitute sacrifice. So imagine this. Imagine you head to court. You did a horrible crime. You can imagine whatever you want it to be. You're standing there in court. Jury comes back in. Judge asks for the verdict. Judge says, no, it's okay, all right, here we go. Here's your sentence, death. And then I, in the courtroom, say, hey, wait, 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 wait. I'll take that. Let, let Jay go free. Now you'd go, no, 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 don't waste your life. That's terrible. I did the crime, I'll do the time. Okay. Now imagine like Mother Teresa or Billy Graham or somebody else stood up and said like, no, 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 I will take that. I will do it. You go, no, that's a crime. That's a shame. But now imagine the judge himself says, look, you deserve death, but I'm actually going to send my son for you. All of a sudden, this moves from being like this terrible shame, a waste of a life, to like, that's unthinkable. Why would you ever do that? It doesn't make any sense. If I say I'll die for you, it sounds really noble, but it's theologically insignificant because I'm just a man. I'm not a spotless lamb. I don't have a sinless life. Who does? Jesus. And so he can be a substitute Sacrifice, no matter how noble, no matter how good, no matter how admirable, no matter how selfless, a human being, sinful, can never save another human being. So why is Jesus an acceptable substitutionary sacrifice? Great question, glad you asked. Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus, here's what Isaiah says. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, fancy word for sin, Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. So that's reason number two, because only Jesus can be a substitute sacrifice. Reason number three, because only Jesus is worthy of worship. This just catapults you into a life of worship. Please hear me on this. All theology about Jesus should lead to a relationship with Jesus. And every relationship with Jesus should lead to worship of Jesus. Charles Wesley. Charles Wesley, who's the brother of John Wesley, who started the Methodist movement in the late 1700s. Charles Wesley wrote 6,000 hymns. One of my favorites, here it is. He says this. He left his father's throne above. 
So rare, so infinite his grace, and emptied himself of all but love, and bled for Adam's helpless race. Tis mercy all, immense and free, for oh my God, it found out me. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon, flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in thee, my living head. And clothed in righteousness divine, bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? Now, apart from the great poetry, what's he saying? What's he see? And what does he want us to see? Here's the principle beneath the poetry. The amazing love of God is made all the more amazing because he chose to give it. Jesus, being fully God, didn't have to come, didn't have to suffer, he didn't have to die, but he chose to. Jesus, being fully God, did not have to be whipped, spit upon, nailed to a cross, nearly naked, but he chose to. Jesus, being God, experienced horrific human pain because he chose to. The idea that God himself, seeing me, knowing me, and still loving me anyway, That wordless, that's worship. Worship is the beauty of the gospel breaking a heart wide open. So, last question, and we'll transition actually to communion. What am I supposed to do with this? What am I supposed to do about this? What is this? Where do I go? One answer, I want to read you one more verse. Revelation 5, 9. Here's what it says. They sang a new song saying, worthy are you, singing this to this slain lamb, to take the scroll, open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Why do we need to be ransomed? Why can't we just get off scot-free? Here's the insight, and this actually helps us transition to communion, I think. It isn't our awesomeness that defines us. It's our needfulness. It isn't how much we got our stuff together. It isn't how much we can put on a happy face and just kind of cruise through life. That's not what defines us as a church. What defines us is our needfulness. So when we celebrate communion here in just a minute, deacons, if you guys would come. Here's what communion is. It's kind of this mashup of two words. Common union. Communion. It's the thing we all share. So what do we all share? We all share this sin of Adam that we all inherited. Can't get away from it, can't suppress it, can't stop it. It's going to come up again, maybe even today. It's going to rear its head in your life, and you're going to go, I can't believe I did it again. And here's the bend. If you're counting on your own righteousness, you're already lost. You can't impress God enough. But... When we celebrate communion, what we are declaring by action is that we're trusting in Christ's righteousness. So guys, if you go ahead and start passing the plates, for you guys, I want you to hold on to these elements as they pass you by, and I'll come up in a moment, and I'll pray, and we'll take these together. This bread and juice, this memorial meal, what this is is a declaration. 
declaration that Christ and Christ alone. So as the plates are being passed, just hold on to these for a few moments. His common union, our needfulness, not our awesomeness, our sin, our desperation, this idea that we need the Lord, we need his righteousness. Let's pray together. Lord, in these moments of quiet, we hold these elements. Help us to remember, Lord, the amazing extent that you went to, the pain that you went through. Lord, by your spirit, speak to us in these moments. For those who are in this room or those watching who don't know you, God, I ask that this morning may be the time where we go, you know what, I have been counting on myself too much and I want to stop that and I want to confess Christ. A cross, blood that was poured out for our sins, a body that was broken. How much you must love us. So we say thank you. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening to this episode of the North Canton Chapel Podcast. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please share this episode with your friends or spread the word on social media. If you subscribe and leave a five-star review, it goes a long way to helping us make much of Jesus every day to everyone who hears these podcast episodes. You can also donate to this ministry at ncchapel.com forward slash give. Thanks again for joining us. May you go out into your places and spaces, making much of Jesus every day to everyone.